This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, the history of teaching far from campus. Charlie Allison traces the development of distance learning at the University of Arkansas, a practice that began with correspondence courses in 1912 and then AM radio in the 1920s. That's in our second half hour. But first, let's go underground as we travel to Madison County to meet up with a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service biologist who specializes in Ozark's cave ecosystems. He was invited by a private property owner to survey for hibernating bats in a remote cave. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, such bat surveys help to determine the status of bat populations, a critical species in decline due to both disturbances and disease. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Ozark Highlands biologist Pedro Ardapple hikes past towering limestone bluffs along a oak hickory forest trace on the Kings River watershed this sunny late winter morning. My main job is recovery of threatened and endangered species and preventing the need to list new species. He walks past a massive bluff overhang from which piped fresh crystal cold spring water flows. Property owner Dane Schumacher guides us into a ravine and up a steep embankment, a mile-long trek to a small moss-covered cave opening, which he thinks might be a winter bat habitat. We gardened uh, for over 20 years, and when we first started gardening, we would notice in the evenings, um, I I mean, numerous, I, I think I counted 30 bats at one point flying overhead and now I rarely I saw one the other evening and so they've diminished significantly. Art Apple says certain Ozark bats live in caves and bluffs year-round emerging to feed on insects but some bats fully hibernate through winter in cave habitats. You have the northern long-eared bat, the Indiana bat, tricolored bat, gray bat, Ozark big-eared bat that are currently threatened or endangered, and then the little brown bat and the northern long-eared bat are candidates. Schumacher says he's only ventured into this cave once years ago and worries intruders could be disturbing this site, which bats may be using for winter hibernation. And that, that is concerning to me. And so I thought maybe it's best to, to contact an expert and see what we've got and see what we need to do to take some conservation effort to measures to, to protect whatever's down in the cave. Because I think it's a bellwether uh, for the, the health what's on top. Um, I think it'll be a good indicator of what's going on. Schumacher said he found Art Apple online. And he got right back with me. And through a series of emails, we figured out that there was probably a cave worth looking at, and uh, it was very, very, very easy process. Art Apple divides his days reviewing projects for impacts to threatened and endangered species on the Ozarks, physically surveying bat habitats, and building gates on caves to protect bat colonies from human disturbance. He peers into the dark, diamond-shaped cave entrance. So I bet there's tricolored bats in here at least, and possibly other species as well. Art Apple straps on his helmet, switches on the headlamp, and descends into the cave, negotiating a 10-foot vertical drop with lateral rock footholds onto a steep slope, which leads down into what resembles a long, narrow limestone canyon. 
Water trickles through a stream bed on the cave's bottom and water drips from the limestone ceiling far above. Very cool cave, probably maybe 30 feet tall, probably three feet to four feet wide. Just vertical sheer walls going all the way up. So it's formed by flowing water. Basically there's a water infiltrating uphill somewhere up here and it's forming a small stream. And over time, the, the water has flown through here and dissolved the limestone out because the water tends to be acidic coming off the hillsides in Arkansas. And it forms a channel over time. As he talks, Art Apple's breath creates mist, illuminated by his helmet headlamp. A lot of times you'll go into caves and um, you'll, they'll form a cold sink, which is why the bats go into that cold sink and hibernate within the cold sink. Art Apple surveys the cave, examining the entrance, then walking through, searching for bats that might cling to walls and inside crevices. It's his job to also search for signs of cave crayfish, sculpins, salamanders, and insects. Several large spiders and camel crickets cling to the wall, but no bats. No, no bats yet, but I bet there is tricolored use of it. It's, it's a very nice cave. and. So definitely provides suitable habitat for at least tricolors. Do they leave traces of their habitation of places? You know, if they're the bats that are inside during the summer definitely do. There will be guano piles out of the tricolors. Sometimes you'll see a scattering of guano, but generally, um, if it's just one or two, a lot of times you won't see it. Walking deeper into the underground canyon, Art Apple and Schumacher methodically shine headlamps up and down the sheer limestone walls, illuminating ornate flowstone. The sheet-like deposits are formed over millions of years by carbonate mineral-rich waters flowing down cave walls, creating places like this. The deep underground cave has no exit, abruptly ending, and still no sign of bats anywhere. It could be that we've had some warm weather here in Arkansas, and it's possible that they have already moved to trees. It's the time of year where they're transitioning between the caves and the trees. Dane Schumacher was hoping to see some bats, he says. Uh, yeah, I'm a little disappointed. Um, having Pedro here has helped me sort of identify what to look for, um, what time of the year possibly uh, to come back down optimally to find maybe the type of bat that would be here, the tricolored. Um, so I'll definitely, if I come back in here, I'll look for that. Um, but I am a little disappointed that there's, no, there's, there's not any bad activity or bad hibernating in here because this seems like it would just be the ideal place. Art Apple says bat cave surveys are typically conducted midwinter when bats are settled and deeply resting in hibernacula. So when we come out and survey, you know, it gives us information on population and distribution for the state, which then allows us to manage better for the species. Um, but also it informs us of what's going on at specific sites. So a lot of times we'll have human disturbance of colonies that is, causes population crashes or things like that. And then we can manage that better, work with landowners to try and protect those colonies. Art Apple is also monitoring for white-nose syndrome, a fungal infection that's killing millions of hibernating bats in 37 U.S. states. In Arkansas, white-nose syndrome imperils hibernating bats as well, including little brown bats, Indiana bats, and Ozark big-eared bats. 
to help protect bats, which provide incredible ecological services to humans controlling insect pests, including those that damage food crops. Art Apple encourages Ozark's private cave owners to contact him to get on his survey list. The easiest way is to Google the Arkansas Ecological Services Field Office, and my contact information is listed on there, both my cell number and my email. Email is definitely the best way to reach me because I spend a fair amount of time out of cell service when I'm surveying. After exiting the cave, Art Apple hikes on to check on bat populations elsewhere. He wriggles into a tight sinkhole to assess future access and crawls deep into several bluff caves. He finds no one home, perhaps next winter. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Little Rock native Brent Renault was killed Sunday, becoming the first American journalist to die covering the ongoing war in Ukraine. The acclaimed filmmaker was 50 years old. Daniel Breen, with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock, has this remembrance. On Sunday, much of the country awoke to the news that the conflict in Ukraine had claimed the life of an American journalist. But while Brent Renault wasn't exactly a household name, in his hometown of Little Rock, the news of his death struck deep. Renault was shot in Irpin, a suburb of Kiev. His colleague, Juan Arredondo, who was injured in the shooting, said they were filming a group of refugees attempting to flee advancing Russian soldiers. Raymond McCaffrey directs the Center for Ethics in Journalism at the University of Arkansas, where Renault served as a visiting distinguished professor in 2019. He says while the news was tragic, the circumstances surrounding it weren't surprising. You know, there's nothing that suggests he was taking any other risks other than the obvious, which is he um, was in a war zone. But he was in a war zone because he wanted to tell the story of the refugees. Renault's death sparked an outpouring of support from around the world, including a tribute from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The reaction in Little Rock was no different, with hundreds of posts on social media from those who had known and worked with Renault. Mike Poe first met him and his brother Craig Renault in the early 2000s, around the time they were filming Off to War. These soldiers are part of the largest deployment of National Guardsmen since the Korean War. The documentary followed members of the Arkansas National Guard through their deployment to Iraq. We would sit there in awe, you know, generally the first few times that we met with Brent and Craig when they came back from the work that they were doing and hear stories about how they had gone through, you know, maybe like a camera a day just because of the sandstorms. Poe says Brent had a talent for getting people to trust him and ultimately open up to him in his camera. And that, uh, I think, helped give him the access that he needed. It helped people trust him with their story. Um, people that, that, you know, were under fire to trust him to be there, you know, and not to be a somebody that they had to, to carry along. Raymond McCaffrey says Brent used that talent to show an unvarnished look at some of the most difficult subjects in some of the world's most difficult places. To know that you're going to watch something that probably is going to break your heart requires a lot of commitment. And Brent was able to you know, elicit that commitment. He was right there <laughs> all the time. In addition to his work, many in Arkansas remember Renault for his role in setting the stage for the state's burgeoning film industry. Renault, his brother Craig, and two others co-founded the Little Rock Film Festival in 2005. 
Catherine Tucker heads the Arkansas Cinema Society, which took up the film festival's reins when it ceased operations in 2017. She says the festival's importance can't be understated. Its beginning is really what prompted the film industry that we have now in Arkansas, because those filmmakers were like, I want to make movies now and I want to stay at home. I want to work in Arkansas. Tucker says though Renault's films focused on some of the grittier aspects of human life, the hope in his documentary subjects always shone through. You know, there's so much darkness in the world. I think that people are getting weary with some of the darkness. So I think having the ability to to tell a good story as well as you know, weaving in all of the horrible things that are happening, you know, I think that it's it, it it's critical to, to have those storytelling skills that they had. Mike Poe agrees, saying even in death, Brent Renault wouldn't want the audience to lose sight of the real tragedy of the story. He wouldn't want people to feel bad for him right now. He would want people to feel for Ukraine. He want people to feel with people struggling everywhere. And he would not want us to just sit and worry about his loss. He would want us to pick up our cameras and to take action and to go where we need to be. Brent Renault, journalist and filmmaker, was 50 years old. In Little Rock, I'm Daniel Breen. The number of active cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas continues to drop. The Arkansas Department of Health counts just more than 1,800, the fewest active cases since June 10th. The ADH reported 423 new cases in the Monday numbers, but the ADH also reports an unusually large number of cases added in the last week. That represents a backlog of cases faxed into the department weeks ago during the Omicron surge. KUAF is supported by Fayetteville Animal Shelter and Services, supported by the city of Fayetteville, and dedicated to the welfare of animals and the people who associate with them. Information at 444-3456 or Fayetteville Animal Services on Facebook. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, welcoming classic country rock group Nitty Gritty Dirt Band to the auditorium in Eureka Springs Thursday, June 9th. Band hits include Mr. Bojangles, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, House at Pooh Corner, and more. Tickets are available online at tickets at thundertix.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The James Beard Foundation Award finalists are scheduled to be announced today. The annual awards recognize exceptional achievement in culinary arts across the country. When the semifinalists were announced three weeks ago, three Bentonville restaurants were named. The Preacher's Son is one of the 20 restaurants across the country nominated for outstanding hospitality. And two Bentonville chefs are among the 20 semifinalists in the southern region that includes Arkansas, Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Puerto Rico. Rafael Rios of Yeos and Matt McClure of The Hive. This week, there is a reception for all the nominees at 21C in downtown Bentonville. As you might expect, a gathering to honor three restaurants within a mile and a half of each other that are all semifinalists for a James Beard Award. That reception is full of good cheer. Just to gather together after the last two years is cause for celebration. But the four men at the center of this reception are pretty chill. Happy, but far from boastful. Matthew McClure, executive chef at The Hive, says it's an honor to be nominated, and this is his seventh for Best Chef in the South. That nomination, he says, is a thrill, but he's thrilled for all three restaurants. It's it's such a community effort. Um, I think that that list represents the work of, you know, a, a lot of people 
for the last decade trying to move the needle uh, for this community. And, you know, at the end of the day, we all win. You know, we all have great food. Um, this town works really well together. And, um, I, you know, I'm just I'm excited to be part of it. Fellow nominee chef Rafael Rios has been a favorite with his fare at Yiyo's for years in Northwest Arkansas. His path to being a nominee included working alongside his father, farming, and selling produce at local farmers markets. He says for Bentonville to have two of the 20 semifinal chefs in a region that includes New Orleans and Miami is indeed reason to celebrate. A lot of room for celebration, for celebrating your, 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 your fellow chefs and and obviously, this is a big thing. It's not something you get all the time. Uh, recognition in the national level is is, uh, is something that needs to be uh, celebrated. So we, I get calls from Chef McClure. I get I get flowers for, from this guy, and I get and and we all like call each other. We try to try to let them know that it's it's important what they're doing. So yes. Adam Green, the general manager of Preacher's Son, nominated nationally for outstanding hospitality says just one James Beard nomination for the region is great, but three? Obviously, three really great chefs here, super talented people in a very small town has brought them all together. Uh, really lucky to have that here. Neil Gray and Matthew McClure, chefs of Preacher's Son and The Hive, respectively, say the nominations are humbling and motivating. It's very motivating to see that we have this many nominations and this many up-and-coming restaurants here in the area. And I think it creates um, a healthy competition and also a healthy camaraderie between us all, so it's really exciting. It does motivate the team to be on this list. Obviously, it's such a rare opportunity for, for most chefs or restaurants to be um, recognized. Um, so it's, it, it is absolutely a motivator, you know. We, we, we've got our, we, you know, we've, we feel like we've worked hard to get here, and now we need to even work harder to, to maintain it. Chef Rafael Rios from Yeo says he thinks this year's three James Beard nominations are just the beginning for what is, he says, a continuing culinary atmosphere in Bentonville and Northwest Arkansas. I think Northwest Arkansas should be proud of what's, what's happening. Uh, I think Northwest Arkansas has a lot of potential. We still got a lot of growing to do. We still have a lot of fine tuning to do, but at the end of the day, uh, these types of recognitions are not easy to get. Uh, that means we're doing a lot of great things in our communities and uh, bringing in great chefs. And the culinary scene is just is just starting. So, I mean, True. It's, it, there's so much more to come. The eventual 2022 James Beard Award winners will be announced at a ceremony in Chicago later this spring. At Monday's reception, the local nominees were asked if winners received a trophy. They weren't sure. But Adam Green, the general manager for The Preacher's Son, says something much better than a trophy comes with the James Beard attention. Well, there's certainly global recognition, which is which is as important as any any piece of hardware that you could hoist above your head. But I think just again, just being nominated, and you know, as as Neil stated, you know, at the Preacher Sun, it, the the level of uh, of teamwork and, and hospitality that we're trying to put forth, and I'm sure the same is uh, for for Chef Rafa and and Chef Matt. You know, it's. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. This is Ozarks at Large. For the past 37 years, you've depended on KUAF and NPR for important news, facts, and context. Every day you learn something new and go beyond the headlines to better understand your world. And it's because of listener support that we're able to make this possible. 
Your gift keeps unique programming on the air and available for everyone in our region. Give back to the public radio that has given you so much for more than three decades during our spring fundraiser beginning Monday, March 28th. Be sure to make a gift, and thanks. This is Ozarks at Large. The latest episode of Undisciplined drops today. The podcast collaboration with Ozarks at Large, KUAF, and the African and African American Studies Program at the U of A is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore. This week, we hear from Eric Hughes, a doctoral graduate student at the University of Arkansas whose research focuses on the racial history and impact of Interstate 630 in Little Rock. So my dissertation project is, is titled uh, Through the Heart of the City, Interstates, and Black Geographies in Urban America. Mm-hmm. So the part Through the Heart of the City comes from the history of Interstate 630 in Little Rock. And interstate, but that's also from Stevie. From where? Stevie. Talk to me. Through the heart of the city. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for sure. That's... It's got an old soul to it. It's got an old soul to it. And, like but it. it's fitting. But it's absolutely fitting when you look at the history of Little Rock itself and really the the history of interstate construction in modern urban America, how these routes for these interstates were placed in a lot of ways in accordance to the intersections between race and class. Mm-hmm. And when you look at Interstate 630 in Little Rock, this project was a part of the Eisenhower Federal Interstate System, but it wasn't an initial construction, one of the early projects in the Eisenhower Federal Highway System. This project, this I-630 project, was a long-standing proposal by city planners in Little Rock from the 19, late 1920s and into the 1930s. And it relates to this conversation that you were talking about migration. The, in the classes that I teach, I tell my students, particularly in my African-American history classes, I tell them that black history is American history. And so th- these things that occur to and within and on to black communities don't happen within a vacuum. Right. They happen within intersections of all of the other movements in American history. Right. And when you look at the early 20th century, particularly the, the, the end of the 1920s and how the mid, the 1920s themselves and into the late 1920s, how the different sectors like the agriculture sector were impacted by the effects of the Great Depression long before 1929. And this impacted migration, because when you're talking about agricultural workers, you're talking about black folks. Right. You're talking about sharecroppers. Tenant and, farmers. And, mm-hmm. Exactly. And so these are the people who are moving into urban spaces seeking better opportunities, whether mm-hmm. it's urban spaces in the South like Little Rock or urban spaces in the North like Chicago, New York, uh, Boston, wherever. And so as this urbanization is occurring, this is, a, this is a movement that's happening in American history. It's not just black people that are moving to cities, but because of this pressure brought by this influx of movement, the, the racial codes of America are, are then exacerbated uh-huh. when black people come into these spaces and you start to see more black people in these spaces. And what is all these black people doing here now? Right. We got to get some order to this. Uh-huh. And so these policies were then created to try to renew urban spaces to the goals of white supremacy. Absolutely. Um, Which points to maybe Stephen Woodward's thesis, I think, a little bit more than I was expecting to think about today, right? Uh, How people 
tend to think about segregation as immutable folkways of the South, right? Um, and he was saying that segregation did not emerge seamlessly from slavery, which it seems like what you're saying, that Jim Crow segregation was a modern urban creation um, masquerading as, as, a, as a timeless Southern um, tradition. So mm-hmm. it was a response to all mm-hmm. this movement that usurped mm-hmm. You know, uh, what people had imagined to be the the kinds of boundaries and, you know, what what was comfortable proximity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? So yeah. and, and, and I for I, I and little, just connecting it back to Interstate 630 development development in Little Rock. I show, first of all, that these policies are foundational to American history. Um, There are scholars who point out that this concept of the impossibility of integration, the the need to segregate races, uh, whether it's enslaved Africans or Native Americans and white colonists, this existed before America itself existed on paper as a constitution. Mm -hmm. And so these goals are reflected even as you move into the 20th century, particularly because of the the increase in black people in urban spaces and the, the efforts of black people to take on their own futures and fates in this country to try to secure rights, particularly in areas of higher education, Mm -hmm. and how this created pressure that led to 1954 and the desegregation of American schools, which scared the hell out of white people, particularly now that there are more black people in urban spaces. Now our kids are having to go to school together. So in Little Rock... They haven't gotten over that yet! I mean, but in Little Rock, so this, this seamlessly flows with the history of Little Rock's urban development when you look at 1957 and the desegregation of Little Rock Central High School, well, in response to this incident, there is a need to clearly define where each group will be going forward, right? Right. So you see the development of this interstate project that was a long-standing goal from city developers in the early 1920s, and it lost steam. It didn't have enough money. Now it gets wrapped into this federal interstate project to where the money is funneled into Arkansas Little Rock to develop this interstate by people like Congressman Wilbur Mills. Mm -hmm. And Congressman Wilbur Mills was the Ways and Means Commissioner in in the U.S. Congress in the 1960s and into the 1970s. And he was the most powerful person when it comes to finance in Congress. So he cuts the check and (sighs) he gets to say the money gets to go to I-630. So that kind of... And people, people, the idea, given what was happening in Little Rock, the idea, people were ready to latch on to the, the, the time had come. Yes, for the time had come to continue to define what Little Rock's future would be, but also there's an understanding from a political standpoint, which refers back to the conversation I was talking about earlier about how Arkansans are concerning race in comparison to the other Southerners, mm-hmm. other Southern states. Arkansans understood that the tides were turning when it came to race. And so the development of I-630 then takes on an economic perspective to where this is something that can improve the reputation of the city from this legacy of racial trauma. Right. And you were talking, I think at one point, um, if I recall, about Henry Grady's New South. Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So who was Henry Grady and what is this new South? And, you know, what are the objectives that Arkansas would align themselves to? 
So Henry Grady was a key figure when it comes to this New South ideology. When we look at the early 20th century, this shift away from agricultural production and the post-slavery society was a key factor in redefining Southern identity. Henry Grady was out of Atlanta, and he was a journalist and entrepreneur, and he was one of many. Because it's the Grady School of, um, at one of these business schools, mm-hmm. uh, Grady School, people were trying to knock it down along with Fulbright. Well, because of the legacy. But <laughs> yeah. it, and, and the legacy is, is that, you know, these, these New South individuals wanted to remake the, the, the production capacity of the South while retaining the social codes from the institution of slavery. They wanted to move away from this, focus on agricultural production and move into more of an industrial model in, in, in alignment with northern cities that had moved towards more of an agriculture, or that always even had more of an uh, industrial approach. And so you saw that in cities like Atlanta, cities like Birmingham. These places became production capitals, and this New South model had more of an industrial production approach than an agricultural model. And that was reflected in Arkansas by the industrialization in areas in timber industries and and, and textile production. And this led to growth in factories in cities like Little Rock and Pine Bluff and also black people moving to go get those jobs and moving up and having affluence and moving into areas where they would encounter white people and their kids would go to school with white kids. And this would, again, and increase... And this is the dilemma. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is the dilemma. So Interstate 630 was kind of, as you said, the the response to these pressures. And as Interstate 630 developed, this outlined where black and brown people in Little Rock now are. Exactly. So when was it constructed? And it started in 1963, in April of 1963. Um, it was completed in 1985, I believe. So, mm-hmm. And this is, again, segregation in education and the desegregation of American education is totally connected to urban development and this concept of where kids will be schooled mm-hmm. because the, if you know anything about the Brown versus Board of Education decision, there was two Brown versus Board of Education decisions because the first one didn't. Brown one and Brown two. <laughs> so, <laughs> All due and deliberate speed. Absolutely. Y'all weren't going fast enough, sir. Absolutely. And so that clause, <laughs> all deliberate speed, allowed Southern states to massively resist this decision. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until the 1970s that you saw busing become the way that integration actually was forced onto American cities. And and this further enhanced the need for how do we continue to develop the barriers between these different people groups as well as adjust to this developing economy. Because there are one of the, and I'll, I'll throw it back to you, but one of the more interesting facets about my research is the different intersectional areas, the different histories that it brings together, whether it's interstate history, urban policy, racial trauma, you know, all of these different areas. But you understand that they all play a factor into the development of America's historical narrative and the development of the car and the car culture to American history is a huge part of interstate development, as well as this notion of how can we make this tool that's going to continue to develop our cities and continue to develop our economies and feed our fuel for the cars, as well as continue to show where black and brown people and white people can be. 
That was Eric Hughes and a disciplined host, Dr. Karee Banton. You can hear the rest of that conversation in all the places you get your podcast. Undisciplined is a collaboration between the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, KUAF, and Ozarks at Large. And ahead on Ozarks, all the ways students have learned from University of Arkansas instructors the past 150 years. His motto for Arkansans who wanted to pursue continuing education was repeated often from Paragul to Texarkana, from Fort Smith to Helena. He said, quote, this is your university, use it. Another expedition through UA history with Charlie Allison in about three minutes on our show. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Entertainment Fort Smith, a monthly magazine with a comprehensive calendar of events covering live performances, dining, home design, lifestyles, and people profiles. Available at over 200 locations and on the web at efortsmith.com. It's time to give a big spring break trophy to the people behind the triple feature scheduled next week at the Jones Center in Springdale. Monday through Friday, there will be three movies each day, all delightfully tied together with a theme. Monday, for example, three films with emotional well-being at the core. Encanto, Turning Red, and Inside Out. Tuesday's movies have water as a theme. Lilo and Stitch, Moana, and Finding Nemo. Wednesday, Wednesday is pretty super with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, The Incredibles, and Black Panther. Each triple feature is in the chapel beginning at one each afternoon, and there will be more than just movies each spring day. For example, Tuesday is Family Swim Day, and characters from Frozen will be skating in the ice arena on Friday. The complete schedule and more information can be found at the Jones Center. The Lunch Hour, KUAF's monthly concert series featuring local musicians and local restaurants, is back with a new podcast episode featuring February's performance by Amor the Artist and conversation with Amor and Nate Walls of Secondhand Smoke. Watch the newest episode of The Lunch Hour, a celebration of local music and food, Right now at KUAF's YouTube page. This is Ozarks at Large. Distance learning was at nearly full speed before the pandemic, but the last two years have taught us ways to really embrace learning outside the classroom. Virtual classrooms are only the most recent tool in the distance learning kit, as Charlie Allison, the executive editor with University Relations at the University of Arkansas, explains. Distance learning at the university has involved planes, ships, the Postal Service, and AM radio. In 1998, a young woman named Billie June Matlock posed for a photo in front of one of the early symbols of American military strength, the 224-year-old warship named the U.S. Constitution, or Old Ironsides as the ship came to be known during battle because cannonballs fired at it from enemy ships just bounced off the hull. Except for a Navy baseball cap, Matlock looked every bit a tourist that day, standing dockside in front of the ship, smiling big as a Cheser cat for the photo. It turned out she wasn't just any ordinary tourist. 24 years later, now a wife and mother, Billy Farrell became the first woman to take command of the USS Constitution. That all occurred during a change of command ceremony aboard ship in January this year. Farrell talked about the quarter-century old photo and said she could never have imagined being in Boston to take command of the ship. She said, quote, USS Constitution serves as a living piece of history. She can be visited and experienced firsthand, connecting us to those who had a vision of what this country and government would be. 
She is also a somber reminder of those service members who gave the ultimate sacrifice on her decks to create the nation we know today. Now, if all this seems like very recent American history rather than Arkansas history, there is a deeper story. Farrell, while pursuing her career in the Navy and slowly climbing the ranks from electrical officer to operations officer to action officer and eventually an executive officer aboard the USS Vicksburg, took time in 2009 to pursue an online master's degree from the University of Arkansas. The program, a Master of Science in Operations Management, is one that many aspiring military officers pursue. The U of A program teaches skills for improving operational decisions, including process design, scheduling, quality management, and logistics. It fit perfectly with Farrell's needs. Now, it's tempting to think that the online programs offered through the University of Arkansas's global campus are a recent phenomenon, but in truth, they are built upon a long tradition of offering courses and education beyond the university's hill through a multitude of paths that began in the early 20th century. The university first offered a few correspondence courses in 1912, and a general extension service was organized the next year with three methods of education, correspondence courses, lectures and addresses by faculty, and printed general information whenever it made sense. Several people directed the extension service for brief periods that decade before Arthur M. Harding took over the operation in 1919. He was a graduate of the university and started teaching mathematics in 1905. He also served as the university's examiner and registrar from 1916 to 1919 when he became director of the general extension service. Harding traveled the state promoting the opportunities of correspondence courses and also giving lectures on geometry and astronomy. His motto for Arkansans who wanted to pursue continuing education was repeated often from Perigold to Texarkana, from Fort Smith to Helena. He said, quote, this is your university, use it. During 1920, more than 17,000 people from 87 communities across 50 counties did just that. They embraced the programs wholeheartedly. One of the first programs he helped develop was with Henry Tovey, the university's director of music programs. Tovey had an extensive collection of phonograph records, those old 78s. He proposed to box up some of them with lecture notes about each musical work and composer and ship them to communities across the state in much the same manner that a lending library offers books for checkout. Victrolas were widely available in most communities by the 1920s, and a civic-minded member of the community could teach fellow neighbors about classical music through the aid of the lecture notes. They sent out a call to towns across the state, and the General Extension Service began sending the packages out to more and more communities over the next several years. Similarly, when the university started an AM radio station a couple of years later, initially called KFMQ, but later redesignated KUOA, professors offered extension courses and lectures by radio with the ability to reach listeners far beyond the boundaries of Arkansas. Nearly 5,000 miles to the southeast in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico, a college student tuned his own radio to the Arkansas station at 11 p.m. Far to the northwest in Valdez, Alaska, alumna Lucy Hun turned her radio on at 5 p.m., both of them waiting to hear the U of A broadcast at 9 p.m. Central Time. Hun sent a note to the university afterwards saying, quote, One of our radio fans picked up the University of Arkansas station. Now every radio owner in town has promised to ring Captain Lloyd Parsons, class of 15, and myself the first thing when the university is picked up. By 1922, more than 1,300 students were enrolled in correspondence courses, and the service had also started study courses for women's literary clubs and continuing education for teachers. Harding described the extension as less important for getting college credits and rather more worthy of, as he put it, a storehouse of knowledge which is at the disposal of everyone regardless of age or other conditions. 
The enrollment in correspondence courses grew through the early 1930s, but it dropped significantly during the worst part of the Depression. It rebounded by 1937 and grew strongly again, even through the wartime years. After World War II, the General Extension Service set up residence centers at Harrison and Little Rock. Faculty members drove over to Harrison and flew down to Little Rock to teach Saturday classes on a variety of subjects at the senior and graduate levels. But much of the instruction was aimed at teachers and social workers. Somewhere around 6,200 adults took correspondence courses during the 1948-49 school year, and another 1,350 took extension courses. When television was introduced to the region, professors offered coursework as recurring programs on stations such as KTUL-TV, which was broadcast from Tulsa, Oklahoma, into western Arkansas. These eventually led to lectures on closed-circuit television that could be recorded at the Fayetteville campus and simulcast in classrooms anywhere in the state with proper equipment. Initially, a TV studio was created in the then-new Graduate Education Building, but the entire General Extension Service was moved to the Fayetteville Square after the city built a 40,000-square-foot Center for Continuing Education, complete with lecture space, a television studio, and offices. General Extension changed its name to the Division of Continuing Education, but eventually adopted the name Global Campus in 2007, a change reflecting technology shifts in the delivery methods for the courses and eventually the way degree programs were offered to Arkansans. Between 2003 and 2007, the number of students taking online classes had doubled and continued to rise through 2020. Today, the U of A offers more than 70 online degree, certificate, and licensure programs, from bachelor's degrees to doctoral programs. In the most recent academic year, more than 900 students earned degrees online, and about half of all students took at least one online course during the year. While many on-campus students do take an online course, the biggest beneficiaries of these programs are people who are already in the workplace or living far from Fayetteville, or, or both, just like Commander Billy Farrell. For instance, Sarah Beth Waller, a Lone Oak County Extension agent and graduate of the University of Arkansas at Monticello, wanted to further her education in the field of agricultural extension service. She wanted to know more about new methods for using technology in educational settings and the best methods for teaching the 4-H students who relied on the extension service for training. She couldn't find a suitable master's degree program available near her home, but found out that Bumpers College was developing an online Master of Science program in extension education. Part of the courses would be offered through Bumpers College, and part of the courses would be given by faculty from the College of Education and Health Professions. The program debuted in 2012, and Waller enrolled and became the first graduate of the program, joining traditional campus graduates for commencement at Bud Walton Arena in 2013 and getting her name engraved in Senior Walk. She described the program as a blessing at the time, helping her achieve a goal that she wanted from the start of her work as an extension agent, but that seemed impossible until the online degree became a reality. George Wardlaw, head of the Department of Agricultural Education, Communications, and Technology at the time, described the program in a manner similar to the early extension director. He said, quote, The University of Arkansas belongs to the people of Arkansas. This online program is one of the ways we can pay back their investment. Charlie Allison is the executive editor of University Relations at the University of Arkansas and each Wednesday shares bits of UA history to celebrate the university's sesquicentennial. More about observations of the first 150 years at 150.uark.edu. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, bringing live music to the auditorium in Eureka Springs. Appearing Wednesday, March 23rd, is American singer-songwriter Lyle Lovett and his acoustic band, 
And performing Friday, March 25th, is the Marshall Tucker Band 50th Anniversary Tour with the Outlaws. Tickets at thundertix.com for more. There will be a familiar figure leading the Arkansas House when the 94th General Assembly convenes next year. Yesterday, House members re-elected Matthew Shepard to a third term as House Speaker. The Republican from El Dorado was selected on the last day of the fiscal session as the legislature went through the official closing session known as Sine Die. Composer and singer Aruj Aftab has been nominated for two Grammys this year, shining a light on ancient Sufi poems central to her music. A lot of these poems are poems that I've been sitting with for like the last 10 years. And it takes that long really to kind of absorb it like proper osmosis. That conversation with Aruj Aftab this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, today from 3 to 6 on KUAF. You can always listen to KUAF by using the free KUAF app for iPhone. This is Ozarks at Large. When the Arkansas State Senate gathers in 2023, it will be led by the new President Pro Tem, Senator Bart Hester, a Republican from Cave Springs. This week, Roby Brock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics, asked Senator Hester how he plans to unify the state Senate under his leadership for the 94th General Assembly, a session that will include several new faces. There will be, and I think I think it's a real simple process, and it is building capital with colleagues, and you build capital with time, right? Um, letting people be heard, making sure they, they not only are heard, but they feel like they are heard. And uh, so I'm just going to be spending time with uh, all the current members and the members that we... Uh, foresee coming in the legislature. And I'm going to build a lot of capital with them. And with that, we will, uh, I think we'll start to gel. Are you going to do something different in terms of leadership than Senator Hickey, who was one of your opponents that you defeated? Are you going to be, how are you going to be different than Senator Hickey? Well, look, I think Jimmy Hickey was the, was the right man for the right time. We had a lot of difficult issues the last two years, but we've got a, a new time coming forward. And I think that time is, it just calls for somebody different. Uh, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to focus my time on, what I've committed the members to is just communication with members. Uh, new members need that desperately uh, because, you know, I remember coming in 10 years ago and you just don't have a clue with anything. So I'm going to communicate, communicate, communicate. All right. The budget session is pretty much over. I don't expect anything other than a regular signy die uh, next uh, Tuesday, I believe it is. You correct me if you think there's going to be some other extracurricular uh, activities between now and then. What do you think are going to be the big issues that the Senate and the legislature will be facing in 2023? What are you kind of focusing on already? Well, what we know right now is the state of Arkansas has a lot of money. Um, and we have a lot of money because the feds were printing a lot of money. And Arkansas is just doing really well. We budgeted uh, fiscally responsible. And I will uh, I will say that's due to uh, State Senator Jonathan Dismang's leadership with Jimmy Hickey. on uh, They really held the line on the budget. Uh, and so... People of Arkansas need to know that we, we've got a lot of money, uh, but when there's a lot of money, there's a lot of problems, right? People want to spend it. People want to save it. People want to cut taxes. Some want to give it back. And so I think talking about the money. I know uh, from previous uh, legislatures, I have been covering Arkansas politics for almost 30 years now. Uh, when there's not very much money, it's a lot easier to govern because you can only do the basics. When there's a lot of money, everybody's got their hand out for uh, for something. Is that, that's kind of what I hear you saying, correct? Uh, that, that is correct. And uh, there, uh, it was kind of an easy fiscal session because we could fund the things that we wanted to fund. Um, but uh, we will see the hands will be uh, out in full force. 
All right, there will be a new governor in 2023 when the next legislature comes into a session. What do you think your relationship's gonna be like with uh, Governor Chris Jones? <laughs> I didn't see that coming. No, hey, uh, we will have a new governor uh, and her name will be Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And my relationship is going to be fantastic uh, because uh, I'm going to be intentional about having a great relationship with her. I was just making sure you were awake, uh, that you didn't sneak <laughs> that one past you right there. Hey, I, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, uh, Sarah reached out to me uh, yesterday and said, hey, you know, congratulations. And she said, would you be willing to make time to start meeting with me on a monthly basis to talk about uh, policy? Should things go well for her? Right. Um, and and man, that was music to my ears. And I think music to all my colleagues ears. All right. Lastly, um, just uh, have you made any decisions let, yet on other leadership? I, I know I'm kind of getting a little bit of the cart before the horse there, but I mean, what, what are you thinking in terms of uh, particular appointments? You see Senator Dismang staying in that joint budget role. Do you have uh, any thoughts on any of your leadership positions yet? Sure. Well, I think the body will have a lot to say about uh, who's going to be in those particular positions. But man, I, I will tell you, um, uh, it would be a shock to me if uh, if Jonathan Dismain didn't continue to lead the budget, he, not just because uh, that's who I want, but it's because he's the right guy in every imaginable role, uh, uh, scenario to be leading the budget for the state of Arkansas. State Senator Bart Hester is a Republican from Cave Springs. He will be the president pro tem of the Senate when the 94th General Assembly convenes in 2023. He spoke with Roby Brock from our partner Talk Business and Politics earlier this week. News about the war in Ukraine is everywhere. invasion of Ukraine. The Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine held their... In Ukraine, there are some big questions. But understanding those headlines can be difficult. State of Ukraine, a new podcast from NPR, tackles those stories with expert interviews and takes you to the front lines from reporters on the ground. And in this line, there are many others who plan to take up weapons for the first time as well. State of Ukraine from NPR. New episodes daily at npr.org slash podcast. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, the price of gas is skyrocketing. But is President Biden to blame? And why blame the president for gas prices, but not other things? You drive down the road, you don't see the price of milk, but you always see the price of gas. There's no Milk Buddy app on your phone. An explainer of what actually drives the cost of fuel and what message the White House should deliver to Americans. You can hear that on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large. Cameron Murray, a civil engineering professor at the U of A, researches rapid setting and pre-stressed concrete, bridge evaluation, and load distribution. He recently received a $140,000 federal research grant to study effective soil cement mixtures for use in waterway structures. Most people live in a house with a concrete foundation. They might park their car in a concrete driveway. They probably drive over a concrete bridge deck on the way to work. Many people work in concrete buildings. And in fact, concrete's used in the tallest buildings and the longest bridges in the world. So it's a very important material. I think the statistic I've seen is that it's the second most widely used material on Earth behind water. And we have to use water in concrete, and we make more concrete than we make almost anything else. Hear more in this month's edition of Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast of the University of Arkansas. Listen at KUAF.com or at arkansasresearch.uark.edu. This is a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. Before we go, let's uh, tell you about something that's going to happen at KUAF on Friday. It is the fourth installment of the KUAF Lunch Hour, which is a live musical performance that takes place in the KUAF lobby. Matthew Moore, 
Yes, that's right. So we're going to have a musical performance by the band Modeling and food from Arcega's Mill District here in the studios. If you want to attend, we would love to have you here. Just go to our website, KUAF.com, to make a reservation to let us know that you're planning on coming. Doors will open at 12 noon on Friday. Masks are recommended since we are a University of Arkansas building. By the way, modeling, they're going to be on stage tonight at George's Majestic Lounge. Uh, They're part of a triple bill, I believe. The show is at 8.30 tonight. Uh, Doors will open at 7. Speaking of George's Majestic Lounge, the George's Majestic Happy Hour, the sponsor for the lunch hour. That's right. So on Friday at noon, make sure to make it out here to KUAF for the lunch hour with modeling. And the event is sponsored by George's Majestic Happy Hour. And if you are curious about previous lunch hour sessions, be they the musical uh, performances that happened in our lobby or the conversations recorded by Lynn's Audio that are part of each performance or each performance week, I should say, you can go to the KUAF YouTube channel and find out more. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Sonora. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today's edition of Ozarks at Large was produced inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio by Timothy Dennis. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Karee Banton, Charlie Allison, Roby Brock, and Daniel Breen. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can find out more about Daryl and his music wherever you find out more about music online. By the way, he is still performing live and sometimes taking requests at 4 o'clock each weekday afternoon at Daryl Sean's Facebook and Instagram locations. We will return tomorrow at noon and 7 with a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. You can always listen to us if you subscribe to the Ozarks at Large podcast. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. And I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for spending some time with us today. We'll send you out with some music from Modeling.